I had the privilege of learning the blues from some legendary musicians. I was one of the few white musicians playing blues back in the 60s, and I want to share some of those stories with you. The 60s and 70s were divisive times, but the blues connected us and always brought us together. I'm Billy Pruitt. Let's talk a blues streak. It was the fall of 1962. I was 16 years old and listening to one of my heroes, James Brown, on my transistor radio. This is my story of my understanding of his struggle from dancing on street corners for small change to dazzling audiences with his incredible shows. I was at Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas, and there I was standing at attention with the drill instructor screaming at the top of his lungs while his spit was moistening my face as he's yelling up close and personal in my ear, seeming like a mentally ill certified card carrying crazy person. Jeez, what did I do? It was my first day of basic training after being awake all night from Travel Connections. I was officially in the United States Air Force, standing in a new position that I had just learned. It was called, attention, sweating in the hot Texas sun, and I could see the heat waves rising off of the pavement with the pervasive male odor of testosterone on everyone's wet fatigues. Just 20 hours earlier, as a simple, naive, teenage civilian, I had just left my parents' house with a heavy scent of smoke from huge piles of leaves burning as the neighbors raked their yards, preparing for winter. I was boarding a plane to fly south and needed a sweater with the chill of fall creeping in from the breeze coming off of the north plains of Nebraska. My only luggage was a carry-on, a paper shopping bag that my mom had filled with a few pairs of underwear, a toothbrush, and some snacks that only a mother's unconditional love would think of. That was all the recruiter said I'd need, so that's all I took with me. I already missed my new shiny tobacco sunburst Stratocaster that I had just purchased three weeks earlier with my dad. Closing my eyes on the plane ride south, I kept picturing it trapped sadly in the darkness of my new tweed case and the dark bedroom closet staying perfectly preserved without a single solitary scratch. In my mind, I made a promise to her that she would be rescued as soon as possible to bask under some colorful stage lights somewhere, sometime in the future. I had no idea where, but I had already visualized it, so I was halfway there. I was going to make this happen. I didn't know it then, but at the same moment, James Brown was recording his first live album, Live at the Apollo. You know, I feel all right, children. I feel all The album would have profound effect on my life, just as the military soon would. I would soon get on board the James Brown Night Train Express. Are you ready for the night train? Yeah. Are you ready for the night train? Being the biggest night. Mr. Dynamite fan, putting more crews in my blues, seeing James live many places, including the Apollo Theater, the Miami Ball Stadium, Chicago's Regal Theater, where he singled me out in the audience during his performance, and even a high school gym in Florida, where I finagled my way back through the halls and had a brief encounter with him just before the show, as he walked by me, smelling of cologne, smiling ear to ear, looked up at me and nodded like a gladiator, ready to conquer. 
when I would see James, I would always soldier out on that mission all alone because nobody ever wanted to join me to step out into the unknown to explore the mercenary territory and a new unknown neighborhood on the other side of the tracks just to see a man make magic. I even did a James Brown tribute show, Cape and All, in one of my bands that was featured in the local newspaper. When I would go into his shows by myself, the plan was always the same, politely making my way through the standing room only general admission crowd to the front of the stage where I could witness his footwork right in front of me. How did he create that magic illusion like he was weightless, like he was floating across a stage with supernatural power? Should I believe what I was seeing? Or should I believe my lion eyes and the wrong information being sent to my brain? At one point, I was convinced that he must have ball bearings built into his shoes. I thought I was being punked. But no, after seeing him on every kind of surface, even beach sand, it was just pure talent like I had never seen before. That plane ride south with the engine sounds of unison and harmony was making me grateful that my parents had given permission for this underage 16-year-old kid to go into the Air Force by signing the dotted line, since years in military school didn't seem to work either. I was already a rebel without a cause because maybe I must have seen too many James Dean movies. My parents had cleverly pushed me into thinking that I made the decision to join the Air Force after I visited all four branches of the recruiting offices that were next to each other in the brand new Crossroads shopping mall at 72nd and Dodge, very close to my house. I was motivated, so I went shopping into the mall, except I was browsing for a branch of the armed forces. Walking around inside of the mall, that chilly fall afternoon, first I considered the prestige of becoming a Marine. I had the urge to emulate my heroes, remembering the story of Steve McQueen in 1947, joining the Marines at only 17 years old, and becoming a complete rebel. Then becoming a big movie star. Yeah, I'm feeling it. I didn't like the vibe. I had to leave, sliding my chair away from the desk as it squeaked my answer like nails on a chalkboard. And I walked out into the mall, into the busy foot traffic of the Crossroads Shopping Center, wondering which way to go, and wondering if I had to make a deal with the devil. I didn't know what I was looking for, but I would know it when I found it. <laughs> it sure wasn't the Marines. Continuing my black belt shopping spree, I looked at the posters in another recruiting window. Bunch of macho guys and an artist rendering, smiling on a ship and visiting exotic places when they had shore leave, with the cool uniforms and sailor hats sliding off of their heads at a jaunty angle and meeting pretty exotic women at some distant port. Oh, yeah, I'm feeling this. So I found my way into the Navy recruiting office. I could seriously see myself traveling the world and being a Navy cool guy. I sauntered in and looked around like Private Robert E. Lee Pruitt in the movie From Here to Eternity. But it was just the same old vibe, like John Lee Hooker's same old blues. Nah. I left and walked a few more feet and saw a big sign. Be all that you can be in the Army. Only four years earlier, in 1958, Elvis had joined the Army. And look how he turned out. Well, maybe I wouldn't be quite as big as Elvis, but hey, it's a start. 
The Army recruiting office wasn't as stiff as the Marines, but the problem for me was that the Army was known for taking anybody who couldn't qualify for all the other branches. As I'm walking out of the mall, I see out of the corner of my eye one more small, unkept office way down at the end of the mall in the smallest storefront. Inside, there was a pleasantly overweight staff sergeant sitting at his desk with his shoes off and his feet crossed on top of his desk with purple striped socks on. It didn't match. It had absolutely nothing to do with his uniform. He was eating potato chips and watching a rerun of Name That Tune on a black and white TV teetering on top of a footlocker placed on end. He had the TV loud and distorted and his back was toward me so he didn't see me as I walked in and sat down. The big prize at the end of that show was to name the instrumental that they were playing by Booker T and the MGs that had saturated the airwaves on AM radio that year. I said, Green Onions! Just as the guy on TV won, and the recruiter turned around and at the same moment said, That's pretty good, kid. I looked around his messy office with a two-burner hot plate on the corner of his desk that was plugged into a wall outlet, had a frayed cord, and it had dried tomato soup stains spilled all over it, and it was baked in. I motioned with my open hand and slowly pointed around the room, asking, What is all this? And without missing a beat, he said, as if there was a drum roll coming, Son, this is the Air Force. Do you want to join? We both laughed, and I started in with my list of layman's questions. And the most important one for me was, can I keep my long hair? And I could hear the honesty in his southern accent when he said, well, you see a few guys here walking around, and they're walking around the base with your kind of hair. Bingo. That's all I had to hear. Sold. I said, sign me up. He said, great, because my quota is one guy short this month, and I want to go fishing this afternoon. He put his glasses on the end of his nose and started slowly moving papers around his messy desk, opening all his drawers, looking a little confused, and said, as, as soon as I find the right paperwork, we'll be all set. I'm already getting used to hurry up and wait. He finally found it and said we can give you a free military pass to fly to Lackland Air Force Base on Thursday if you're ready. We usually give new recruits an economy class one-way ticket, called third class, which made sense to me because in basic training I was going to be an airman third class. Or if you want to hitch a free ride on a military transport plane, I can find one for you on Wednesday if you're really on fire to do this. I thought, hmm, military transport plane, that sounds cool, like the poster I saw of paratroopers just like an unknown army paratrooper named James Marshall Hendricks did in the army a year before when he was discharged as Jimi Hendrix. He put all his energy into protesting the war that was just beginning with my friend Buddy Miles. <laughs> The next thing I knew, I was boarding that transport plane and looked out the window and I saw the ground crew kick the tires and start the engine fires. Off we go, touching down on a small runway at Lackland Air Force Base in Texas. I would be up all night watching orientation films as they explained in no uncertain terms that my body was now the property of the United States Air Force, so there was never a need to question anything. Oh yeah? We'll see. 
5 a.m. came quickly, and just before sunrise, they marched us to get in line for our fatigues and quickly stenciled our name tags over the left pocket. Then we were handed a 100% wool military-issue blanket, watching everybody trying to carry two pairs of heavy combat boots and about 20 other items without dropping them as the drill instructor kept yelling. Ooh, I hated all wool anything because when I was a little kid, it was so scratchy. But it only took my first cold, breezy Texas desert night with all the barracks windows wide open to appreciate the warmth of solid wool. The blankets reeked of the pungent scent of mothballs, and that just became a military odor to me. Somehow, for a fleeting moment, I felt like Uncle Sam was actually going to take care of me. Next, it was into the barbershop, where we stood in line watching everybody get their heads completely shaved in about 20 seconds. I thought they would never do that to James. When I sat down in the barber chair, the guy said, Do you want to keep your sideburns? Oh, man, did I luck out or what? I got in the only line that was going to show me some mercy. I was all smiles, and I said, yes. He said, okay, hold out your hand. I was happy, and I complied, and I'll never forget at the same moment, he completely shaved the left sideburn all the way to the top of my head, catching all the hair on top of his electric razor, and then turned it over and dumped it into my open hand. Oh, military humor, ha ha, I get it. The military machine wanted you to question your sense of self-worth and your sense of individuality. But for me, it just made me stronger instead of making me feel small. It made me feel like my blues music gave me an ace in the hole, a wild card in my pocket that I could pull out any time. The Air Force could change the way I looked on the outside, but it couldn't change the way I felt on the inside. The guys in basic training from all walks of life started associating me with Southern blues. They were confused by my choice of wanting to hang with black airmen. I welcomed everybody's friendship, but I leaned toward the brothers, because for me, my racial acceptance was the unspoken international stamp of approval. I was proud of my mindset. Hearing blues gave me a chill that I couldn't explain. my hair stand up. I mean, the hair on my forearm stands straight up like I was walking into a refrigerated beer cooler. Hmm, 5 a.m. Reveille. Except it wasn't played live from a lonely trumpet player in the dark like it was when I was in military school. Instead, it was played through outdoor speakers throughout the base. Then KP duty, 12 vaccines in each arm was my first test of physical fitness. Marching to Chow, the obstacle course. But to pick me up, I had my little transistor radio in my left top pocket, right under my name tag. And whenever James Brown would come on, I'd try a little footwork and combat boots that the other guys would begin to understand. Keeping my transistor radio on was my lifeline. Listening to James Brown, I pledged that I would always try to see him perform live whenever I could. Later, I saw him at the Apollo Theater in New York City, the Miami Ballpark Stadium in Florida, and in just four years from basic training, I would see him at the Regal Theater in Chicago on the south side. That night, he abruptly stopped the show with his big horn band and looked in my direction as I sat happily in my third row seat. 
just a few feet from the stage. His words hit me hard when he said, you know, I'm looking around and I, I see a few white folks in the audience and it's just my opinion, but I think people should try to stay in their own element. That's, that's all I'm saying. Stay in your own element. Ooh. I shrunk down in my seat, breaking a sweat as the audience members on either side of me quietly shook their heads in a seemingly gesture like, sorry, man, we feel you. Much later, I would realize this had been a life-changing affirmation to feel the sting of my idol's comments from the stage and later to be embraced and asked to join the band of a famous blues artist despite the fact that I was white. After playing in the Otis Rush Band for a few years, I realized why James Brown harbored those feelings because of everything he went through as a child. In Augusta, Georgia, as a little kid in the 30s during the Great Depression, in the segregated South, he developed his killer dance moves on street corners for small change. His struggle continued to follow him through his life. I saw him in 1964 at his very best in the Tammy Show, deserving the top headline act only to be billed second to the actual headlining band. It was just another disappointment for him. A practically unknown band at the time called the Rolling Stones. When I first saw James Brown in New York at the Apollo, I copied his moves straight away. I couldn't really do them, but I did. I had to do my, my versions. Now I get it, James. The discipline of basic training seemed endless. The last evening on the night before we were waiting to get our orders to ship out, saying goodbye and reminiscing with all my new buddies, I was laying on my top bunk, sunburned and looking at the ceiling. I kept thinking about James Brown and how he always seemed to get me through. I would pull a harmonica out of my top pocket and, when in doubt, I would bring it out, try to give that inanimate object some life. As soon as I would start to play, there was always a black recruit or two that would smile and be magnetically drawn over in my direction. I would blow a little anthem that always turned out differently if I would just close my eyes and picture James making me feel good. The brothers would politely sit down on a footlocker and just listen. Sometimes they would keep the beat by clapping along. A close buddy of mine named Demetrius Jones called my jams Billy's Backburner Barracks Blues. And I remember it going something like this. Where the magic man, he made me tap my feet. When he tapped to dance, I, I really feel the beat. Watch that Tammy show. Leaving in the morning and I never be back. The boot camp in my rear view hit the road gap. Say what you will 
now Jane make time stand still You always make my day And there's nothing more to say In retrospect, the military macho intimidation failed to make me a robot without opinions and didn't take away my identity. And I was able to overcome all they tried to indoctrinate into me. So now I'm able to pass it on to the come-uppers. This one's for James, feeling and forgiving everything he'd been through, realizing that we're basically all in the same predicament, facing the same challenges, similar common problems, on the same sea, just trying to navigate through life the best we can, trying to get as many people on board as possible to celebrate the beauty of diversity. Let's take the high road. This is called, We're In This Thing Together. Talk a Blue Streak to stream the latest episode. Produced at Rocket Chicago by Hector Perez. Executive producer Linda Malazzo. Audio engineer and graphic design Dan Perez. For more about Billy and the Blues, go to BillyPruitt.com or TalkABluesStreak.com. Talk a Blue Streak is a registered trademark.